Welcome to Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when they're not. I'm your host, A.A. Ron Milich, and I'm here with the bullet train of board games, Royce Calverly. Royce, say hi to everybody. So we're going to talk about train games, and you didn't want to save this for the train game episode. Oh, we're, we didn't tell me that. You don't tell me anything. Well, we knew at some point we were going to do train games. <laughs> God, well, now I'm going to have to figure out something else. Well, do you know why I called you the, the bullet train of board games? Uh, no, actually, I have no idea. Really? Really. Well, who's our special guest today? Well, that's Mr. Tony Boydell. Can you believe it in the main event? Tony, to, Tony, <laughs> Tony Boydell. That's going to be wow. very hard for yep. me to say. He's got too many Y's in his name. Tony Boydell is our special guest today. How do you keep getting these special guests on our show? Are you giving them my paycheck or how is that working? You get a paycheck? No. And now I know well, why. Well, that's where it's going. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but yeah, All right. He, bullet trains. What are we doing here? Why? I still am confused. Well, he, he created Snow, Snowdonia, which is a train game. Yes, but it's about the Snowdonia Railroad, which is like as far from a bullet train as you can get. Well, I didn't want to call you a slow train. <laughs> I wanted to give you a compliment. So bullet trains are fast and slick, and you're fast and slick at board games. I thought it would be appropriate to call you the bullet train of board games. Isn't that nice of me? Totally nice of you. Yep. yep. <laughs> Episode 33. Can you believe I'm feeling it? like you just didn't put that much thought I into did. this. I did. I put a lot of thought into it. <laughs> now I'm hurt. Episode 33. Yep. Can you imagine? Episodes. When are you going to unlock me? I've done, have I done enough yet? <laughs> unlock you? Yeah, unchain me from... Never oh, <laughs> oh, 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 we let you go. No, no. Well, maybe around episode 50, I'll let you out for, episode. you know, a little walk in the park. <laughs> episode 50. Oh, my God. Yep. 17 more to go. All right. So, yes, we do. We have... Tony Boydell as our special Nicely guest on the show. I don't know how Royce is doing this, but he's getting all these great people on the show. We're going to be talking a bit about uh, Reiner Knizia today as well. He's going to be featured in our news and new to the collection. This week, we only have two in quick thoughts. We wanted to give more time to Tony, so just two right there. But as always, we're going to start our show with feedback. And I'm sure the bullet train of board games wants to give us the feedback song. Everyone stand back. The maestro. I thought I would do something a little special this time in honor of Tony, who is, uh, who is British. I will do it with a British accent. Oh God. Ready? No. <laughs> Feedback. Uh, okay. Haven't you ever noticed that when British people sing, they don't have an accent. <clears throat> so that is singing with a British accent without an accent. Mm -hmm. That was, certainly was. And it was short. That part I liked. <laughs> we have feedback from jeff let's just jump in jeff our, All right. our friend our, our gaming guy jeff parker so this is a little bit of feedback and a little bit almost like a quick thought just really quick quick thought okay uh i mentioned oh a couple episodes ago now about welcome to yeah and i talked about the differences between welcome to and welcome to new las vegas and i mentioned that i liked welcome to new las vegas better because it was a little more complicated, right. it had a little bit more going on. Yeah. So Jeff introduced me to the advanced rules for Welcome 2. Oh, okay. And I think that's the sweet spot. All right. 
just slightly more complicated than Welcome to. Not quite as complicated as Welcome to New Las Vegas, but it's a really, I think that would be the perfect way to play Welcome to from now on. So I think Jeff is right. The advanced rules to Welcome to are where it's at. If you haven't played it with the advanced rules, I highly get, recommend giving it a try. And where can people find the advanced rules? Uh, well, I assume it comes in the game, but on BGA, you just have to select the advanced rules rather oh. than the base. Easy as that. Okay, then. Yep. All right. And then Dave. Dave. Right. So Dave had two things. First of all, he wanted to give a game recommendation to you. Nice. Not to me, but to you. Anyway. Yeah, uh, so he recommended Bottom of the Ninth from Dice Hate Me Games as an excellent baseball game that isn't just a random luck fest. That would be nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd be good. So yeah, bottom of the ninth. I've seen the box. It, I've never played it. It hasn't ever sort of spoken to me, but right. I'm not a huge baseball fan like you are. So maybe it's something to keep your eyes open for. It might be worth giving a try. Yeah. The other thing he wanted to talk about was rule books. Okay. And he wanted to provide what he thought was a horrible, horrible rule book. And that was <laughs> Spirit Island. I don't know that one. Uh, Spirit Island, it's a neat co-op game. It's one of the few co-op games I actually think I enjoy playing. Not that I would choose it over a competitive, but if I'm choosing a co-op game, it's probably very high on the list. Everybody is playing their own spirit, and everybody is very has their own very complicated rule set. So you can't really alpha game or do anything because you're too busy worrying about yourself to be worrying too much about what everybody else is doing. But as far as the rule book goes, I never learned it from the rule book. So for me, I don't know, but he says that the worst part, and this is something that I, I sort of mentioned is that it's broken into three parts. So you've got an introduction part where it's like an overview of the various sections. And then they have the detailed breakdown of the, each rule and then the third has very specific phases and rules that are like the 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 edge case rules and the small rules and the little extra rules that you need to know in order to do the middle part Hmm. so if you want to look something up you have no idea whether it's in the first part the second part or the third part you've got to look in all three sections to find the rule that you're looking for and yeah i hate that too so i I've never looked at the rule book for Spirit Island, but if it's set up like that, I can totally understand it. Awesome. And he also said that he agreed with me on the Z-Man games and the Lookout games with the expert or the returning player section. Right. And he wondered if that was copyrighted because everybody should be using that. <laughs> Maybe it is. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to check out Bottom of the Ninth for sure. And so thank you to Jeff and Dave for their feedback. And since we have no more feedback, do you know what that means, Royce? Well, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> don't, don't sound too excited. Yay, the- I know what it is time for. It's time for Aaron's Awful Joke of the Day. Thank you for that wonderful intro. You know, that would have been better had you done that in a British accent with that voice. That would have been something. Cheerio, laddie. Let's <laughs> have awful joke of the day. <laughs> Kind of hit Australian yeah, boards. Yeah, you did. There. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm glad you caught it. Hip, hip, cheerio. I don't know if you know, but we went to school with a guy who became a train engineer. Did you know that? Nope. His name's Kent. Do you, know, you don't know Kent? He became a train engineer. Okay. Yeah. So I asked him, you know, how many times has your train derailed? He said, I'm not sure. It's hard to keep track. 
Wow. Just wow. Uh, a, B, what do you think? What kind of grade does that deserve? Uh, somewhere around a Q. <laughs> Q, which is perfect for quick thoughts. All right. So like I said earlier in the program, two quick thoughts this week. One from you, one from me. And yours is called Four Gardens by Martin Dolezal, Korea Board Game Company, Korea Board Games Company, 2020. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... This is a, it's all, a little bit of a difficult game to explain, and I'm going to do my best. Uh, how this works, you are attempting to create panoramas. So you're trying to create, they're using cards to make these pictures that are either, I think, three, four, five, or six cards long. And each card is a multi-use card. You can use it either to become part of the panorama later on, or for one of four different actions. Hmm. And when you use it for an action, you can't use it in the panorama again and so on. The actions are fairly reasonable. They make sense. You're moving resources to the panorama cards. If you put the right resources on them, you flip them over. Uh, you're getting wild resources, that sort of thing. Except the main action, the collect resource action, is completely unique. I've never seen anything quite like it. So first of all, you have to almost picture this in your head there is a 3d pagoda okay like a, an asian pagoda sitting between you uh, between all the players and it's square with one side facing each player right and all four levels of the pagoda can rotate so you can rotate the bottom level if you rotate the bottom level all four levels will rotate if you rotate the second level uh the top three will rotate. If you rotate the third level, the top two, and if you just rotate the top, it rotates independently. Got it. And on the side of each of these levels, there is resources printed on the side. So one level would be stone, and it would be zero, one, two, or three stone, depending on which side of the pagoda is facing towards you. Hmm. So you play the card, to collect resources, it's going to tell you which level you can rotate, and you can rotate it 90 degrees in either direction. And then it tells you whether you're collecting resources from the bottom up or the top down. And you're going to collect all the resources that are shown on your side of this pagoda. Okay. But you can only store four, and you can't skip any resources. So if you've got like three on the first level, then you're only going to be able to get one from the next level and zero from everything else. Oh. So getting to those middle resources can be a little bit tough sometimes. You've got to sort of try to figure out how to do that. So you're rotating this pagoda. You're getting your resources. You put them on your cards. You're moving your cards onto the panorama cards. Flip those over to get points and to complete the panorama. Really neat. Really interesting. I really like the pagoda mechanism. I think that's really cool. My only concern with the game, I've only played it two players. Right. And at two players, it's really, really cool. And you're able to predict a little bit how the pagoda is going to look on your turn. You're able to make plans. With four players, I, I have to think that it would be a little like, like Potion Explosion. Right. You know, when you play Potion Explosion with four players, you kind of have to look away for a couple players' yeah. turns. Yeah, yeah. Because if you watch the marbles and you're like, okay, I've got my move and it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And everything is different by the time your turn comes around. If that pagoda rotates a few times on other people's turns, you're going to have that same problem. Right. 
So I wonder if it, if maybe there will be a little bit of a lag, a little bit of downtime between players on the four-player game. But for a two-player game, and maybe even for a three-player game, I love that Pagoda mechanism. Four Gardens is a really, really neat game, and I don't have anything else in my collection that's anything like it. And it's beautiful as well. So would you recommend it? I would, absolutely. If nothing else, you really should try it, because it is a unique mechanism that I haven't seen in anything else. Hmm. I'm just a little hesitant to recommend it with four players until I've played it with four players. Right, I understand. Okay, yeah. time for me to talk about my game. I got my hands on a copy of Nunami. So our first ever guest that was a board game designer, he'll always have that honor, is Thomas C. Mangyuk. And he is the first Inuit board game designer. And we had him on our podcast. I don't even know. It was quite a few episodes ago now. Do you remember what episode it was? I don't, but I can look it up real quick. Yeah, you do that while I talk. Um, he made it in 2020. Royce got his copy even before Thomas C. was on the show. And I just picked up mine. And I broke it out with, uh, with the wife. And I got to say, really liked the game. I love this game for a couple of reasons. I like games that don't look like games. It's very artistic looking. It, it looks like an art piece. It basically comes with these black and white trays and triangular cards, plastic cards. <clears throat> and like you said, it's going to be hard to explain Four Gardens. Uh, I'm <laughs> going to say the same for Nunami. We had to play it three times before we really thought we were playing it correctly and understood what's going on. Um, but what it says on the box, which is a game where by balancing nature and gaining influence, you win. That's really what this is about. It's definitely an abstract game. I watched a review online to kind of get the idea of how to do the gameplay. They were comparing it to chess. I don't know if I would compare it to chess. I think it played a little bit more like Othello. You play mm -hmm. a card and the cards around you flip, right? So whatever. Right. Yeah, it played a little bit more like that. Um, and basically it really is about balancing man versus nature. Uh, and if you do that correctly, then you're going to get some points. If you do it incorrectly, if you go too far one way or the other, then you're going to lose points and not win. Very, very, he said he played this with his kids and I'm like, his kids must be geniuses. <laughs> it took us a long time to, to, to really get it. it. It's definitely very strategic, very challenging. And because you can kind of set the board up however you want with these uh, trays it comes with, there's so much replayability. Uh, you know, you can, it's like any abstract game that way. You can just keep playing it over and over and over. Every time is going to be different. Your setup at the original, you know, when you, when you first play the game is you can place eight cards anywhere. Again, that's always going to change the replayability. So we really liked it a lot and uh, loved the look of it. If I had one small complaint, I think he's very, very evil for creating slippery triangular cards and then asks you to shuffle and deal them. <laughs> <laughs> I found yeah, that Yeah, I to just be sort of swished them on the table, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was challenging. Uh, otherwise, fantastic game, great looking game. Uh, it plays great and just, just an awesome guy too. Uh, yeah, so we spoke to Thomas on uh, Tomasi, sorry, on episode twenty-two. Okay, 
Uh, so if you want to hear more about his the Inuit way of life, how that has influenced his game designs, uh, about the design itself, the design process, you can go back to episode 22. Uh, just uh, just a couple things. It's So what Nunami is, is an area control game over seven different districts. And the districts are these trays that can be arranged in different patterns. So each time it will be a different pattern. And each district interacts with the others. If you, as Aaron said with Othello, if you place a white uh, or a nature card on one, it will flip over any adjacent cards to their other side. The thing that I love about Nanami, and I don't know if you figured this out yet, is the aggressive, you're going to win this tray, so I'm actually going to improve your score because... The Inuit way of life is all about balance. And if one person is in too much control, they end up getting zero points for yeah. that sector. So I love just, you know, okay, well, if you want to win that one, no problem. Here, win it really big, and then you get nothing because <laughs> yeah. you are not in balance anymore. And I love that tension between when do I help myself and when do I hurt you? Uh, when do I help you by hurting you or hurt you by helping you? It's just a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. It got a little nasty uh, with my, <laughs> my time. Um, you said se seven, but I think it's six trays for two players. I played with six. Sorry. It's seven with more than two. Yeah. 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 And uh, each tray has six segments like pies basically. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's funny. You call it an area control. The guys on on YouTube called it abstract. For me, it felt abstract because of the design of it and because you can do whatever you want. But it is sort of an area control game, too. Yeah, area control can absolutely be abstract. That's not a problem. Go is a perfect example of an abstract area control game. And it's simply a matter of, do you control these areas? Yes, you win. Otherwise, you don't. So yeah. You're abstract. Thank you. <laughs> With that... Let's head over to the news. All right, so you've you've gotten into this this trend of writing down very little in the news. So I have no <laughs> idea what you're going to talk about, and then uh, you're going to do all the talking. So it's Grail Games versus Doctor Knizia, Royce Calverly. All right, <laughs> not doing it intentionally. Just oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So this is a little bit of an interesting thing, and I thought that this was something that we should definitely discuss. So Dr. Reiner Knizia, arguably the most prolific board game designer in existence. He has more games attributed to him than anyone else. Uh, his games always do well. He has, I don't know how many games in the top 100, top 1,000 on BGG. A number of his older games were picked up by Grail Games. So they picked up a number of his older games. And then they also published a couple of newer games, like Yellow and Yangtze, for instance, which is in itself a reworking of Tigers and Euphrates, which is one of Reiner's like best games. Hmm. So everything seemed to be okay. They were doing well. Uh, Yellow and Yangtze uh, didn't get the same love that Tigers and Euphrates did, but it sold well. A lot of people seemed to really, really like it. And then all of a sudden, last month, uh, in May, Grail Games published a blog post, and it was entitled, Grail Games Grows Up. Hmm. And it was sort of a history of what they've done up to this point, of who they are as a company. And one portion of it is that they said they would no longer be selling Knizia's games. Oh. They were going to stop selling them. And in this blog post, they basically alluded to a lack of sales. 
Really? And they they had a similar message. I don't know if you remember when we were talking uh, a few episodes back, I mentioned Steve Kimball from Z-Man Games, who wrote this whole article about how uh, the classic Euro line that they had been publishing was being canceled because a classic Euro doesn't make an impact in today's market. Mm, yeah, I think I remember you mentioning right? that. And so Grail Games had a similar message. They were sort of implying that the sales hadn't been very good, that they weren't making an impact, that it wasn't, they were choosing not to end it. Hmm. Or rather, not to continue selling his games. So on June 22nd, Reiner Knizia goes on Twitter. And I'm just going to read out the entire uh, Twitter message. Okay. So it says, To clarify some misleading communication from Grail Games. My games leaving Grail Games because I terminated the licenses for breach of contract. Mm. Sad face. (laughs) So as opposed to the Grail Games spin that they weren't selling, this is Reiner Knizia saying, no, you guys uh, breached the contract. I assume didn't pay the licensing fees or whatever it might be. And so he has terminated the licenses. He has told them they are no longer allowed to sell his games. Right. All right, so the Grail Games Grows Up blog post is gone. Uh, it was deleted. Uh, uh, so it's gone. It's no longer there. So nobody can go back and see when they talked about this. And it's sort of up in the air right now. Hmm. What I found most interesting about this is was actually a response from another designer, a uh, designer that I respect quite a bit, arguably one of the smartest people in game design, Jeff Engelstein. And Jeff Engelstein said, I don't know the details here, but I can tell you I don't know a single game designer who hasn't had a contract breach, mostly and mainly for late royalties. We most repeatedly ask for rectification and don't terminate, but we should stand up for ourselves more often. Good for Dr. Knizia. And basically what he's saying without saying it is if you are a board game designer you should basically expect the publishing company to not pay you. Yeah, <laughs> to that's not good. force you to go <laughs> after them. But if you happen to be Dr. Reiner Knizia, you can say too bad. Right. And it's only because of his stature that he is able to say, I'm just going to take my licenses back. Stop publishing my games. Right. No other designers can do that. They need their games to continue to be published, even if they're not getting paid on time or at all, possibly. Right, right. Wow, that's so I just, tricky. Yeah, I just thought this was a fascinating interaction because it's when one giant suddenly hits the publishers, somebody who has the clout to be able to say what everyone else wants to do but can't. Yeah, yeah because it's in the designer's best interest for their games to be designed too, right? To make the money they're never paid. <laughs> and if you want to have another game published, yeah, you don't want to get a reputation of like ripping the licenses away from people for little breaches of contract. You don't want to have the reputation of having your games canceled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I guess we'll have to wait and see, keep an eye on this one and see if anything changes there. If, they do get back into bed together, or if that is the end of Canizia and Grail Games. What do you think? 
it seems like it's the end. It really yeah. feels that way a little bit, unless uh, this is all a negotiation ploy, but I would be very surprised if it is. I don't know why they would create that blog post to, to say, oh, it's a matter of sales and then and then really like go back on it. Maybe there's something in the contract too that says something about you can't uh, say things like that on in on, online social media because I know that some people have those in their contracts now. You can't badmouth people in an online way. <laughs> Or maybe they just were spinning it. They, they're canceling this line and they don't want to explain why. So they came up with a semi-reasonable understanding and they just never expected Canizia to stand up and say, hey, no, that's not what happened because nobody else would have. <laughs> but as soon as they delete it, that pretty much, you know, it's not an admission of guilt, but it's an admission of guilt. <laughs> so. It's certainly a, well, we probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I guess so. I mean, Grail Games is obviously isn't the only place that's producing Canizia. Oh, games. no, I'm sure every company has a Canizia design under their right. wing somewhere. Yeah. Right. So, not a huge deal. Okay. Well, that is interesting. And yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the biggest thing is that unfortunately, that means the expansion for Yellow and Yangtze is never coming. Oh. <laughs> and it was all ready to go, it was set. So, unfortunately. You're not going to get your expansion to Yellow and Yangtze. I will get my sympathy card in the mail to you today, Royce. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's head over to new to the collection. All right. So, new to the collection. You have one. I have one. And I'm actually going to go first because mine happens to be a Reiner Knizia game. What a coincidence. <laughs> so, uh, long story, hopefully short. Um, I don't get out to 401 games and Meeple, Meeple Mart and, and Board Game Bliss uh, very much because in my neighborhood, there are three places that sell board games. Uh, West End Comics, uh, the Toronto Dart Board Company. I can't remember if that's their actual name. They sell games. And... But the one that's closest to me is a candy store called Sweet Thrills. And the guy that used to own it really liked board games. So he kind of made that a part of the store. And then he went to Dufferin Mall very briefly. Unfortunately, wasn't as successful, I guess, as he wanted to be. And then sold Sweet Thrills to someone else. But they have kept the board game thing going. And they have a great selection of games. Uh, a lot of party games, a lot of kid games, but also a lot of great games that we've talked about on the show. And I've bought a few of them from there um, but what i like about this place is they often have uh stuff on the floor and if it's on the floor it means it's going to be for sale and their sale prices are usually pretty good so what i'll do is i'll check out the games that are on sale and see if any of them might be a good fit for me and so i found this one called rondo and it looks like a pretty straightforward uh, place your colored tiles on colored numbers and score sort of game. It doesn't look like it's terribly hard. I haven't played it yet. I haven't even opened it yet. Um, but I was surprised after I bought it, I noticed that it was actually nominated for the Spiel des Jahres in 2013. And, and it yeah. says something else here that I am not familiar with. Maybe you'll know. It says Spiel hit for family in 2013 is that just saying it's a good hit for families or I, it's not an award i've i know of but it might be yeah. there's a lot of awards out there yeah so i'm not sure if it's an award or if they're just sort of saying this is recommended for families but yeah so i picked this one up and it was like 
it was less than 20 bucks after the sale and everything. So I thought I couldn't go wrong with a Reiner Knizia game and one that seems pretty simple and straightforward to play, which I can break out with anybody. So Rondo on Schmidt. And it looks like it came out in 2012 and then nominated for the award the Spiel des Jahres in 2013. Not that Royce cares about the Spiel des Jahres. I do. <laughs> but Royce does not. So it this is what sort it is. of gives you an idea how prolific Reiner Knizia is, though, that you have a Reiner Knizia game that was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres that I have not only not played, but have never heard of. <laughs> I have a feeling, based on what I've seen, Probably a little on the easy side for you, a little on the simpler side for okay. you. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I will open it soon and give it a go, and then we'll talk about it in quick thoughts in the future. And your game is called The Throne of Allegoria by Robin right. Lees, Stephen Mc- or Steve McKenzie, Spielwerks, 2019. What's going on with Throne of Allegoria? So this is, I wouldn't say, I almost don't want to say, I I was going to say this is a little bit of a grail game, uh, but not a grail game as in the company we were talking about earlier, but a game that like, you know, I've just been interested in getting for a while. It's, there's a little bit of controversy behind this one. Okay. So this was released by Spielworks. I think it was released at Essen and it was released to a really good response. Like it had a lot of buzz. Spielworks doesn't do large print runs. It's estimated that there were only a thousand copies of this printed by Spielworks. Wow. And you got one. Well, <laughs> roundabout. So <laughs> it what happened was instead of going through distribution to sell this game through distribution, Spielworks made a deal with Board Game Geek. Okay. And Board Game Geek would be the exclusive North American distributor for this game. This is one of the first games that was part of the board game geek geek store of games when they started to do this. They've had quite a few since then, including a number of freedom and freeze games that I've been interested in, whatever. So they had the exclusive rights to North America. The problem with this is any game that is goes to the BGG store tends to be very expensive Mm. and shipping, especially to Canada is really expensive. So this game was 95 us dollars on the BGG store. And when I looked, I think it was another 45 in shipping. Oh, God. So I game. was very interested, but I wasn't going to pay 140 US dollars for a Euro yeah. game. Yeah. So I wasn't going to buy it, but apparently it did sell pretty well on the BGG store. A lot of people were getting it. A lot of people were happy with it. Yeah. Remember, this is late October, early November, when this happens, when they announced that this would be exclusively through them. And everything's fine until January. So less than two months later, January 10th, Game Brewers announces they're doing a Kickstarter for a deluxe version of the game. Oh. And the deluxe version on the Kickstarter is 69 US (laughs) dollars. There's no way that Spielworks and BGG didn't know about this Kickstarter coming in two months wow. when they announced the exclusive rights to North America. Mm. They, it just everyone who had purchased it felt ripped off. Yeah. Uh, people that hadn't purchased it felt like the people that had purchased it had been ripped off. Mm. In addition to that, there were a few other things. The deluxe edition wasn't very deluxe. The stretch <laughs> goals on the deluxe edition were huge. And the Kickstarter went live on the 10th and was canceled on the 12th of January. Oh. 
And again, there's a little controversy because they were well on their way to being funded. I think they were like 90% funded in two days. They were going to fund. Hmm. But they put out a message saying, even if we fund, we are not selling enough copies to make the game. Basically, our funding goal is not the goal we actually need to hit. Hmm. And after two days, they were confident they were going to hit that. And then with all the pushback and everything else, they, went away. they felt bad. So I had sort of kind of almost written this game off. And then I saw a guy out in uh, Spartan, uh, Sparta, Ontario, who was selling a copy. And I said, okay. And I got it well less than probably a third what the U.S. price was going to be shipped from BGG. And I'm just super excited. I think that this is going to be a neat game. It's all about uh, the queen is dying and all the lords and ladies are competing for their for her favor. It looks like a great game, but it's just I kind it's neat. It makes me happy because I really didn't think I would ever get a copy of this one. Right. So I'm very excited. I'm going to put you on the spot because that's one of the joys of being the host of this show. <laughs> I don't do it often enough. Uh, this is, you know, you were saying it was a, a, they printed a thousand. Do you happen to know in your collection what is the most rare game you have in terms of you got a copy based on the print number? Or have an uh, idea? Give me one second. I bet I can tell you. All right. Let's give him one second. Unfortunately, this meant his face got closer to the camera, so I can really see him up close now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reasonably sure yep. that this is actually a game, a Kickstarter. Uh, this was one that Grace really fell in love with, and it was a really good Kickstarter. Uh, this is Healing Blades, Defenders of the Soma. Okay. This sounds familiar. I think you talked about this one. I may have. Yeah, it's yeah. a two-player Kickstarter game where you, one player is playing as viruses. Yeah. And the other player is playing as the vaccines and antiviral yes, yes, agents. Yes, yes. But it's set in sort of a high fantasy type of world. So each one has been very cleverly illustrated to reflect the original virus, but to look like a fantasy monster. Right. And the science is absolutely correct. Like, it's got to be the correct uh, anti-vaccination or antiviral properties against the various viruses. A really neat game. I don't think there were more than, I would guess, somewhere around 600 copies of that wow. one made. And you got one. Yeah. yeah. That's impressive. That's very cool. Uh, oh, you know what? That's not my rarest, though. Oh. My rarest would be my first edition of Clinic by Albin Viard. Right. Yeah, that I mean. was handmade by Albin Viard. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that time, nobody was publishing it. And all the copies that came out then, he personally handmade. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably the one yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that one doesn't really count because there's new versions that have been very popular and have been sort of put out. So the deluxe edition, for instance, had thousands of copies sold. And what was Clinic like again? Uh, clinic is all about running a small private hospital. So these games and are kind of related. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, clinic, though, is very much a uh, spatial game where you're actually building your hospital up over multiple floors. Certain units can't be next to other units. Right. You're hiring staff. You are paying expenses. You even have to worry about parking for all of the people that come in. You're taking in patients, and depending on how sick the patient is, they pay you an ex so much money. And, you know, if you 
really are nasty. Maybe you let them get a little bit sicker before you take them on so that you can get the most money from the patient. And <laughs> it's just a really amazing simulation of running a private hospital. Interesting. Cool. All right. So Throne of Allegoria, you do have a copy. I do now. I'm super excited. And Rondo. So when we get these to the table, we will let you know in quick thoughts how they're going. But now it is time. And we're super excited because we both love this game. Our main event, Tony Boydell. All right. Welcome to our main event. This yeah. is a very exciting main event for us. This is We have with us Mr. Tony Boydell. Uh, Tony is the designer of one of our absolute favorite games, Snowdonia. And really, that should be enough. We shouldn't have to say anything else. <laughs> but, you know, he did design over 20 other games. Wow. Uh, until recently, he was the dri one of the driving forces behind Surprise Stare Games. He's the author of Everyone Needs a Shed, which is... The longest running board game blog on BGG, unless I'm mistaken. And then cool. just, you know, because he doesn't want to rest in, on his laurels at all, he has embarked on what might be the most ambitious project yet. He's opening a museum dedicated to the history of games and gaming. Holy cow. It, welcome, Tony. Well, <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Good evening, both of you. Nice to, nice to speak to you. Absolutely. Nice speaking with you. So I figure we should start with Snowdonia because I have a beer bottle with your face on it. I mean, I don't want to sound like a stalker here. <laughs> so did you pick that up from um, the Essen Spiel, which would have been 2017, I guess it would have been? I didn't pick it up in person, unfortunately, but I did have a friend who was happy enough to mule it back for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that, that was my 50th birthday beer. And, right. Um, yep. The idea was that I found a local brewery um, who would print anything you liked onto the labels of the beer. And I thought, well, great, let's have a 50th birthday beer. That's great. Um, but why not make it a component for a game? And, of course, the only game I was, you know, at that point, that I was really obsessed with was Snowdonia, because I'm always obsessed with Snowdonia. And I thought, well, let's make a, make a sort of a, make a train card, right. but put it on the beer bottle, and then only certain people will be able to get access to it. So I had... I think I ordered about 350 bottles of beer, which made Alan and Charlie at Surprise Dare Games um, drop their drop their food and, and, <laughs> and their cups of tea because they were sort of saying, well, wh why, you've, why have you spent this money on beer? And I said, well, because it's a promo card for Snowdonia and it's beer. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we'll have any trouble flogging this at two quid a bottle or two euros a bottle at Essenspiel. Yeah, because yeah. people are always drinking beer and always having beer off the stands and so on. So I thought we'd have no trouble. As it turned out, I ended up giving away more bottles to my mates than I did <laughs> actually selling. <laughs> so I paid surprise their back because <laughs> I thought it was a bit cheap. Well, I so will say my bottle didn't come with any beer in it. The fellow that muled it back for me, he decided that was the cost. Well, that's well, that is the that is the cost of, of, of promos. And then, of course, I spoiled it all for you because literally a year later on, a Kickstarter came out which had it all in there anyway. And yeah, and so that gives you an idea of how much I loved Snowdonia. Is that I even chased down the beer bottle promo. <laughs> I had pretty much everything. The only things I didn't have were the few Vassal uh, cards from the, Vass the Jimmy Vassal auction. Yes. Uh, yeah, because they were literally impossible to get. So naturally, when I saw the NSKN version with that in it, you know, well, I got that too. So. 
Yeah, that was that was a wonderful process, actually, because the guys came to me saying, we really like Snowdonia, we really think it needs a reprint, and we'd like to do everything, and that includes the Jack Vassal um, right. stuff. So um, I said, well, good luck with that, let me know how you get on. I'm, in principle, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested, because we haven't, actually re we haven't actually reprinted the base game since, I think, Indie Boards and Cards did it in... 2013 hot right. off the first edition that we did with lookout right that's um, the second edition kickstarter i was actually yeah, was. in that one too yeah, yeah we were so impressed with that i mean it got fifty-five thousand dollars. i was like this is amazing and then nskn came along having secured the, uh, the the permissions of everybody um along the line and just for good measure i added three more scenarios that i've been working on as well <laughs> And it turned out we had, I think it was something like 50 stretch goals, I think, along the way. I don't know if you remember the campaign, but I was just as surprised at some points of the campaign as, as everybody else was. Because, you know, they'd wheel out a designer that they hadn't realized they'd spoken to. And they say, oh, this guy's designing, you know, uh, a King Arthur expansion. And this guy's designing a train. And we're going to do double-sided plush printing, screen printing of wooden components. And, and it was absolute. it was delightful for me to see this rolling out. Um, and delightful to see how popular it was as well. Because this was a game at that point had been out seven years, was quite hard to get a copy of. It wasn't impossible. Um, and it's by, the, by all rights, you know, a game that, that, was, that was that old ought to have sort of diminished into the background of it. But it, I think perhaps what I thought was a bit of fun, which was the expansions, the, the scenarios, yeah. is the thing that gave it the longevity. Because people would would always be reminded of it. They'd come to Spiel or they'd come to UK Games Expo and they'd say, oh, you've got another scenario. And it would just keep the game sort of front of their mind rather than just being on a shelf in a corner somewhere. I agree with you entirely that the scenarios definitely gave it its life. It's what kept it going. I wish that those scenarios were easier for us to get here in North America, for sure. Because you're right, they were sold primarily at the various conventions or through your website directly. And I did get them all eventually, but it, it was difficult sometimes. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Well, yeah, well, we suppose their games um, has always been, and it still is, a, a very, very small independent publisher. So we never really had the... the the mechanics to be able to produce in very large quantities and we certainly couldn't um ship to the to the u.s all the options that we had for distribution were sort of basically predicated on us taking a gamble you know print three thousand copies of something and ship it over at our own cost and hope that somebody would would mark it up in the warehouse for people's attention so we were always a little bit scared about sort of overreaching ourselves and i think that was the right thing to do we'd always take the profit from last year's game and invested in this year's game sure and that meant that we'd always have something rolling along whether it was an expansion or a full formed game and that was really important in the early days of surprise because there was just the three of us involved in a company and just the two of us who were effectively designing any kinds of games at all myself and alan paul so we really couldn't risk taking a punt is the phrase that we'd use over here you know just taking a gamble on something we'd always have to be quite um careful and then when lookout picked up snowdonia suddenly we were working with people like clemens franz doing the artwork and and people we were seeing the industry that we hadn't really seen before you know <laughs> people were actually answering our emails where they wouldn't have answered our emails before and it's a weird thing that that the, the luck that we had that hanno picked up snowed only in the first place uh, and then that leading on to 
you know, reprints and Kickstarter campaigns. And, and of course, in recent years, I've actually been doing games with publishers completely independently of Surprise Stare Games. So it wasn't even if somebody picking up the license or something. It was actually just somebody coming, Tony, we'd like you to do a game for us. Right. Or we're interested in what you're talking about in this podcast or this particular blog post or whatever it might be. And I think they just announced Lux Arterna was picked up by Capstone, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. I mean, the guys from Capstone are, are awesome. I, I think I'd love to be a proper heavy gamer. So, you know, I... I, I have 18xx games on my shelf. I have lots and lots of complicated games. I'm fairly terrible at them, but I love <laughs> I love too. the process of playing. I love the process of playing them. And in fact, the best games I've had have been with um, folks at certain conventions. Lariacon in Portugal, for instance, I've been there sure. a couple of times now before the pandemic. And I met up with people like Matthias Nage from Frosted Games, the guys from Heavy Cardboard. Um, got just so many ace people you know designs isaac childress was there one time and you kind of play games like pax Pamir or infamous traffic things that would have bent my brain but they kind of, the guys are so generous they carry you along with the, with playing them so you actually you just find yourself actually enjoying the process and feeling like you've got a chance even though you haven't really you know, <laughs> right yeah people like <laughs> people like blenheim and spielworks is is one of the greatest uh, gaming people that I know is also a very, very excellent games player, but he's so generous. So he'll always offer advice, and you know, so and offer it in a way that it doesn't sound condescending and mean. And oh, no, he'll do that as well. He, he's he's very rude, uh, uh, <laughs> like you, right? So it's not only you're handing it off to NSKN, you're saying, hey, build this for me. That must have been almost terrifying after having so much control over it for so long. Well, actually, I, they didn't want me to go away. They wanted me to be involved in it. So when I said, oh, look, I've got some scenarios that you could use as stretch goals. They were like, yeah, fine. Br brilliant. Yeah. Tell us about them. Tell us what it's going to mean. We'll fit it into the, the thing. They They ran by various videos and, and, and certain stretch goals. They did a series of recipes, for instance, of Welsh, famous Welsh recipes. <laughs> and um, as part of the sort of daily sort of input. I there, forgot about that. Yep, yep. Yeah, they did so much. And, and I thought, this is fantastic. And they didn't want me to just disappear. They wanted me right. to be actively involved. So when they said, look, we've got so many cards now, we've got slots for, you know, player design cards. I said, that's fine. I'll run, I'll run the design competition online and I'll judge it. Uh, you just you just told me how many exact you know spaces you've got, and they said, well, you can have six spaces. And then very quickly, the response was so good that I said, well, we need going to need a bigger boat on this. So they said, all right, twelve spaces. So they actually wanted me to be. And in fact, they'd all, already kind of signed me up to this holiday. I don't know if you remember the ultimate stretch goal was, I think it was like two and a half thousand dollars. Spend a week a, a week in North Wales, go up right. snow on the train. Right. And Tony will be there to play board games with you. And it's like, well, this is great, guys. Um, yeah, absolutely. So they had me at that point. They offered me a free holiday. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, we even play, pay your expenses, which I ended up spending on, on beer and souvenirs for, for the, the guys that, that came along. Yeah. And we had quite the most wonderful week. Um, yeah, I'm a little jealous by that. I'm also a little bit, uh, you expanded to 12 possible uh, fan-made cards, and you still didn't pick mine. I, I just don't understand. Well, I'll have to go back to my archives, Royce, and see if I can you know, 
see if I could do that. I have been known, you see, I'm, I'm a, I, I can't help it. Um, somebody sent me a really lovely letter about a problem with a box that they had. It was completely smashed up. So I sent them something back, and on the packaging, I, I doodled a train with which just had some text on it said you know if you can pull this this wrapping out during a game then you get an extra five points at the end of the game so in theory it's 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 a, a promotional item that's totally it unique. is by far the rarest promo of all the promos yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you know you can guarantee the guy's box has now got you know some crumpled up packing paper in it with a with a doodle on it because <laughs> it's so it's, it, it, it wasn't all roses, though. There was a little bit of backlash on the NSKN one. I mean, you gave them so yeah. much stuff to us. I know. Yeah, I know. 700 and something cards. Um, yeah. I, it, I, I mean, I, I, I did proofread the cards. I did proofread the, I, the rule book, and I thought we'd caught everything. But, you know, them's the breaks. But luckily, <laughs> I thought, well, right. Because we had a problem when when um, Snowdonia first came out in 2012. I think it was uh, Fun Again Games shipped an entire uh, Euro um, a Euro pack over with sort of 250 copies in it, and I mm. gave them a whole set of of the four promo cards, loads and loads of sets of these promo cards that Lookout had printed for the launch of Snowdonia, and the promo cards all went missing. So I designed a print print and play promo card called Ladas Lost. So if you look at it in your, yep. in your complete set, Ladas Lost is, is, a, is a joke on the fact that they lost these promo cards, but it's also the fact that the first train of Ladas fell off the mountain the day that the railway opened. <laughs> and it took, it took them six months to find the wreckage because it was so in, inhospitable. So, so I, I, I did that as a sort of compensation for the folks that lost out. And the idea with Fun Again would only print off enough copies for the people who were buying and then send it out with the copies of the game. Um, and I did a similar thing with the Isle of Man scenario. I've been toying with the idea of having double weather on, on the railways yeah. uh, for a long time. Um, because on the original Snowdonia, the bottom half of the mountain stations are green, I think it is, and the top half are orange. And that was a hangover for my early playtesting, where the game was sort of played in two halves. You played to the middle, scored, and then you played to the end and then scored, and whoever had the most points won. But I forgot to change the graphics. So it got published with this green half and orange half. And people often ask me, why have you got different colours? And I said, well, it's just a hang-up. And I thought, no, I can actually use this. I can have weather for the bottom of the mountain, weather for the top of the mountain. Because if, if you've ever walked up Mount Snowdon, you can start at the bottom of the mountain in blazing sunshine, 30 degree heat, and you can get to the top and it'll be absolutely chucking down with rain on you. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what mountains do. That's what real mountains sure. do. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go up to Mount Washington, again, 30 degrees heat at the bottom, four foot of snow when you get to the top. <laughs> that's the way mountains work. So, yeah, that's why Isle of Man was sort of... I said, look, I feel really bad about kind of making people sort of pay a little bit for the fact they have a fixed pack, but there were too many cards just to do a few errata to print, in, print on demand. Right. So um, I thought, no, let's make it a whole scenario. So if you're paying $9 for postage, you're actually paying $9 for a brand new scenario if you want to look at it like that. And I got to do my double weather system at the same time. Were you surprised by how vehement the feedback seemed to be given yeah, that like, come uh, on yes. it's 700 cards yes, <laughs> and, yes and no um people's people's expectations i think you know have, have much raised over the last 
20 years since I certainly got into gaming. 20 years ago, you could buy, or 15 years ago, you buy a copy of Kalis with a rather drab drawing of some bloke with a scroll on the front, and that was fine. Uh, the gameplay was all. Now we have so high expectations when it comes to presentation, the playtesting of artwork, the quality of the components, and rightly so, because when you have 1,500 to 2,000 new games a year, what are you going to spend your money on? Right. Um, right. You can't buy them all. Very few people can buy all Royce games. buys them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not hey. all, but too many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, I think rightly so, an industry has tidied itself up. But I think there was a, there's been a few posts on this on BGG recently that actually a lot of the industry is still quite amateur because it's not because it's unprofessional and it doesn't want to be. It's just because it's done by people who love what they do and it's not their full time job. Right. You know, I'm delighted that Capstone Games have picked up Luxide Turner, but Capstone Games are a proper games company. Surprise Stare Games is a games company, but it's something that we did in our spare time when we weren't earning our money to pay our mortgages <laughs> and to feed our families. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th there is a difference, I think. And I think NSKN were very ambitious. They were very generous. And I think just the quantity of stuff, you've mentioned it as well just now, you know, yeah. there were so many things to check. Um, it's, I, I don't blame them for it because ultimately it doesn't really damage the play of the game either. I mean, you know, some of the mistakes, then it's not the end of the world. And most of them were on the promo things and promo things tend to be massively overpowered anyway. So I will I'm say when I was replacing my mistake cards, a half of the time I'm like, this really makes no difference at all. <laughs> like it's, yeah. 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 I wonder that same sort of expectation when you were sort of in the pioneer days of Kickstarter for board games, when you put the second edition out back in, I think it was 2013, you said, and now you've seen it at the other end with the NSKN version, just this massive production. Is this a good change for Kickstarter? Is this, what do you think about Kickstarter nowadays? I guess I, I think it's I think it's fine. I think it's a perfectly um, viable market. I think people still remember. I go back to the amateur games companies that they can't they can't afford to print three thousand or five thousand copies of something. That's an awful lot of money, even at a unit cost. You know, seven or eight euros for your for your bog standard euro box game with with sure. a reasonable number of components. That's an awful lot of money to find. And if you don't have the, you know, the predisposition for distribution or the contacts for that stuff, you're reliant on taking these things to shows. And someone like a UK games company now, it, you know, it's so difficult getting things back into the UK after our political shenanigans. So <laughs> people have to think about different ways and smarter ways of being uh, games producers. And I think Kickstarter, I think, has got through its teething troubles of NAF games, NAF quality you know the rip-off thing i think right. it's mostly now you know you know the companies that are always good you know so I, I think it's a great development i know surprise dare did it for march of progress and ming voyages a couple of years ago and that was really yep. successful for them um because again we couldn't afford to actually do two games like that in all of the multi-language versions up front we kind of had to plan for a print run and then the kickstarter topped everything up yeah. And I guess you had a little bit of an advantage there. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm starting to sound like a stalker. I really am. But I did kickstart both of those as well because I had Cousins War already. Yeah. And I loved Cousins War. So having those two, it was like an automatic backing almost. And yeah. Well, yeah, Alan's quality control is 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 superb. Yeah. I mean, he published all my games for a start, didn't he? I mean, so he, 
the man knows something about board games. No, but uh, the, the pocket cams campaign stuff. You, you, you're right. It's the Cousins War was such a, a, a fantastic surprise for us. We knew it was a good game, but we didn't realise how much traction it would get. And so when Alan had worked on, and he really does work on these things with Dave Mortimer and um, with Ming, uh, March Progress, that was his own design. He works on them so extensively that you guys know that these, this is the same series of games, the same designers, the same development team. It's going to be as good as, right. you know, and, and I think that reputational stuff is, is so important. Um, there's quite a lot of games companies now that just almost exclusively deal off, off, off the Kickstarter campaigns. Yep, absolutely. I think that's absolutely fine. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, I do have a one tiny uh, nitpick with the Cousins War and the series, I guess, is that they changed the box size on me so they don't line up nicely on the shelf anymore. Oh. Well, yeah, I know, but that, that wasn't our fault. That was more the... the, the that was the sort of demands of the foreign language editions. Um, oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah, so if you look at the, the the new box size, that's that's a very common size in German small games, for instance. I mean, Lux mm -hmm. came in that size box and all the others. For other countries... A bigger box justifies the price more than a smaller box. Even if the game inside is worth that much money, people have a set money they would pay for a, a 15 euro game or a 12 euro game, for instance. And if it was in a tiny Amigo size box, they would sort of go, well, that's not a 15 euro game. That's, that's a seven euro game. Right, so right. you are dealing with audience sort of expectations as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just have to go with, with the demand. We've actually had that conversation before about game prices and box sizes. Uh, so I totally uh, understand what you're saying and hear what you're saying. And yeah, Royce and I have talked about it in a previous episode, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> so we talked about Surprise Stare, the, the small, I guess, amateur company, as you said. And then we talked about NSKN, which is a bigger, more established company. But when you did Alubari, A Nice Cup of Tea, I think you were the first game that was published by Hachette Games, right? Yeah, Studio H um, yeah. Is, was established by Hisham, who was with Matago. He was one of the guys that started at Matago many years ago. And originally, I was approached by him um, with a view to it being a Matago game. In fact, when I signed the contract for it, it was a Matago contract. And then Matago parted ways with Hisham or vice versa. I think um, Hisham was looking for new horizons. And, and Matago was settling into what it was doing really well. And he said to me, look, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking away. Would you want to stay with Matago? That would be fine with me. I've got a problem with that at all, but I'd really like you to be one of the first games that Studio H do. And I thought, well, yeah, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to be there um, at the sort of the front, front and centre for a new games company, especially when it's you know, somebody with Hisham's pedigree and the team that right. he brought with him to, to do all the testing and so on. So I, and, and he wasn't paying my mortgage either. And I wasn't looking, I wasn't <laughs> gasping for royalties to say, I need this, otherwise I lose my house. So oh, I can't buy my third Aston Martin. You know, I, was, I wasn't that desperate. So um, I was quite willing to take a punt on it because I, 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 even now, I'm always delighted when somebody says, we would like to produce your game. I mean, that's, you know, it's no little feat that somebody is willing to, to put money at, into a project on something that you've designed that, because they have the confidence that it will make them a profit for a start. Right. Yeah. You know, no one's looking just to break even on things. They want to make 
a profit and they think that it's good enough. And that's so exciting for me. And then somebody says, well, this would be our first game. You know, I'm thinking, well, oh, I could break this company. I mean, it could be, <laughs> this could be a Led Zeppelin here. This could go down like a lead balloon. And I could kill this company. Wow, that'd be something to blog about, wouldn't it? So... <laughs> I just was wondering because they've got the money from Hachette Publishing sort of behind them, so they're not a small company, but they're not certainly not a big company either. I just it must have been very different to work with them that way. Well, actually, um, it w it wasn't that that bad. Actually, I mean, just um, the development process was 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 really easy, really positive. Uh, there was no sort of big industry, big business. Hachette didn't sort of come in kicking around saying, "Now listen here, Mister Boydell, we're a big company, and you need to do as you're told." <laughs> because I don't, I don't have very many demands. I like to be involved in the production of my, of, of my designs, not because I want to be an autocrat. I want to control everything. I, I'm just interested to see what people are doing, and I just want it to be right. And if <laughs> one of the things that we learned with Surprise State Games over the years is that you can take a shortcut to produce a game. Um, so you learn these lessons, and, and after a while, I, I, let, I let my opinions be known, but I do it in a, in a sort of constructive way, because ultimately they, they decide. If they say, they know Tony, right. it's going to be this size board and these numbers of cards and whatever it is, that's no problem at all. But at least then I've said to myself, you know, I, I, I've, I've expressed my opinion about something. So I'm, I'm just genuinely interested. And I guess with Surprise Stair Games, having been involved behind the scenes as well, I know mm -hmm. what goes on. I know what it means to give stuff to an artist. I know what... In fact, I did a lot of the art for, for the early games for Surprise Day because we couldn't afford to commission an artist to do our own artwork. Right. So we, we would just do, do the stuff ourselves, you know? Do you think you could do that anymore? Do you think three people sitting in a living room could start a game company nowadays? Or yeah. is that... Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. Again, I think it goes back to that realistic... Uh, idea about what you're doing. Don't overstretch yourself. Don't think you're going to produce a Gloomhaven now because I think right. Isaac had a great product and a great mind. He, he, the man is a genius. But, you know, just because he did it doesn't mean that anybody can do it. He has the skills to make something like that happen. But I think certainly if people are sensible and realistic and read up, read it, there are plenty of articles, there are plenty of great books and bits of advice about how to do things like this, read read about it and um i think anybody can yeah i think you'd be surprised at how small a lot of these big companies are you know literally the husband and wife teams and everybody else is just brought in when they need to and then they all go away when the show ends you know it's that mm -hmm. yeah i just wonder with the crowded market if they can make that same impact that you could have made in 2010 or 2005 even or something to that effect but i i think so i mean if you look at there are lots of games that pop up on, on kickstarter and you go oh i've never heard of these guys before and the hype gets behind it i think there's uh, yeah i think i think people could do it you just need, always need to be realistic don't go yep. to you know Fair enough. take a two thousand copies of a game to essen for instance you know the biggest public show in the world and expect to sell all 2,000 copies because that actually is surprising it doesn't happen even really? with the bigger, bigger companies if you if you look at the stories of games that are sold out at Essen they're normally 200 copies a day are made available of a game and mm -hmm. they sell out every single day four days of Essen you know 800 copies but the headline is this game sells out at Essen and you think great right. Essen 205,000 people in, 20, in 2019 that's a lot of games they must have sold in four days no they only had 800 copies and they spaced them out and they got the success story from that. So people are surprisingly hard to, 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 to coax away from their money, especially <laughs> when you've got seven halls of games. Yeah. Right, um, right. 
yeah. so it's just a, a competition matter as much as anything. <laughs> it is, yeah. 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 I mean, I yeah. dress my children up in fancy dress costumes for surprise dare stuff to try and entice <laughs> people. And all it did was scare people away. I'm not going to talk to the bloke with a funny robot dancing on his stand. I'm going to go and buy a Martin Wallace train game. I know where I am with that. I'm perfectly safe. <laughs> Or find a second-hand table somewhere where you can get a good deal on something or whatever it might be. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So, obviously, Surprise Stare was a huge part of your life, even though it wasn't your primary income, your mortgage-paying position. What happened? Why have you decided to step down or away? Well, for for a few years, we've... Well... Alan and Charlie moved away to be with their grandchildren. They had some, you know, new grandchildren arrived and they wanted to be with them. And that was a different end of the country. So I stopped being able to commute to weekends of playtesting and and games weekends and all that kind of stuff. And then gradually this process sort of stretched out over four or five years. And I found myself only ever seeing them on the stand at Essen. Because as soon as the show finished, I would be off meeting with various buddies that I'd met. And they weren't the same buddies that Alan and Charlie would meet up with and so we'd you know we'd see each other at the beginning of the show and we'd see each other for supper at the end of the show in between we'd hardly ever see each other at all and we found that we wanted kind of different things i really loved the idea of becoming a famous board game designer and you know <laughs> with the blog and trying to sort of self-advertise myself through the blog and promote games and that kind of stuff i found myself d- designing games that really weren't surprise stare games Right. Uh, um, either because the theme or the, or whatever it was wasn't quite right, or simply it just wasn't practical for us to produce because we couldn't afford to produce it. And then we got to a point. I think it was 2019, or was it 20? No, it was last year. Actually, I, I, you lose all track of time in the pandemic. But I think it was uh, the middle of last year. Completely. I, yeah. Yeah. I had another. I had a, one of my occasional spats with somebody on Twitter about something. Um, I got the wrong end of the stick and got really daft about it and and you know these things happen on social media um and i think alan and charlie had kind of had enough of it really um because it was worrying them that that because a lot of the time people would think surprise their games is tony's company and it's it wasn't it was tony's company and alan paul's and charlie paul's company the three of us absolutely although i ended up designing a lot of the output most of the work all the heavy lifting was done by alan and charlie And I think that they were worried that I was just basically going to tank the company because of my own stupidity. (laughs) And I I thought, well, actually, actually, I I think you're probably right. And, (laughs) you know, we don't really have the same goals anymore. So maybe it's now is the right time to actually, you know, shut up shop. And then when I thought of actually shutting up shop and actually sort of winding the company up, I thought, no, that's such a waste. We'd literally the year before got to 20 years in the business. Such a waste to just to let all of that die. So I decided just to step away from the company entirely and let Alan and Charlie carry on with it. So they, you know, it's still the same, same good people producing the stuff and developing the games in the background that there ever was. It's just that the loud mouthy other bloke is now off doing something else. <laughs> so does that mean we're going to have new books in the Cousin War and Ming Voyages series? <laughs> yeah, Alan, Alan's got loads of stuff just tickling Excellent. away in the That's background. What I he's, hear. A, he's just much more patient about things. So he, you know, and the pandemic has slowed absolutely everything down. Of course, of course, yeah. So the play t- play testing for everybody is really difficult, and and I've tried a little bit on Tabletopia, and it's an absolute bloody nightmare. So I don't. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think hopefully as things start stretching away, I'm not convinced that this year is going to be much of a change. Um, it'll be a little, I think, but I think next year is when people are going to feel much more confident about stuff again. And hopefully I'll get to go to Portugal in March and I'll get to go to Birmingham in June and I'll get to Germany in, in October. Right. Yeah. So I know the UK Games Day is likely going to be the first of these big shows that is going to happen again. Are you feel comfortable going to UK this year? Or? Well, I'm I'm not going as an exhibitor, of course. I'm just going to right. go up on the train. I'm going to spend the day. I think, and it'll be weird wandering around because normally I'm so used to being able to kind of sneak in with a badge or a pass, you know, <laughs> early doors. I go and scrounge all the promos before they all get given away, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm such a games hound. I'm such a game fan. Um, I mean, that's the great thing about getting in early at Essen, is you just get to get all the stuff that everybody wants first. Yeah, we really don't like you people. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, that exhibitor's pass is absolute gold dust. You know, like you want a limited copy of, uh, what, was this? Yeah, what was the Alpaca game, the one that was based on Orléans a few years ago? Uh, I think it was actually called Alpaca, wasn't it? Was it Alpaca? The one, it was, anyway, it was the Orléans, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the new version of, of that mechanic. And I remember being able to pick up a copy of that because you literally went in a hall on the Wednesday and as they were unpacking it, you're going, look, I'm, on, I'm in a standing hall, you know, so, so let's do a game swap or let's, you know, can I buy a copy now? And yeah, yeah, fine. And then you guys all trogging on the Saturday complaining that there's none left. <laughs> and I sat there stroking a huge, huge container full of, you know, ill-gotten gains that I'm going to take home and take a big photograph of and be really smug about on my blog a couple of days later. Altaplano, by the way, was the name. That's the one, Altaplano. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. Uh, so, we've got the big shows. We've talked about some of your more newer games. Let's go to the really classic games. So, I've been reading your blog for about a decade now, and you've always had this collection where you're buying these incredibly beautiful old examples of weird games. And you always talked about the museum, but I always thought it was more of an in joke. Uh, I never really thought it was an intention. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, that was before the lockdown. And, um, yeah, I, I found myself with a little bit of spare cash each month. And I ended up deciding to, you know, to surf eBay for vintage board games. And then there comes a point where Mrs. Boydell says, I need my spare room back, please. And, uh, <laughs> so the museum went from sort of an aspiration for when I retired, which is, you know, I, it, legally I could take early retirement the end of next year, which is slightly depressing, <laughs> the march of death and all that kind of stuff. But um, with, with this growing collection of stuff, it just felt like I needed to do something a bit more. And what I'm trying to do this year is not to commit to some huge property with with all the facilities what i'm trying to do is just to do a little sort of taster a little test i've got enough products i've got enough items to fill a reasonable sized room and so that's my intention is to buy a, a job lot of um glass cabinets from ikea and then uh, basically put the best of the best out there in those cabinets have a load of old things for people to have actually have an actual go at um most of it's roll and move, which is going to send shivers down the spines of most <laughs> dedicated board gamers. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And if I give it a go, yeah. start somewhere small, somewhere cheap, um, and just see, see how it goes. So that's the current plan. So is this going to be a full-time position for you then, running this thing? Because you're going to have no. to be there. <laughs> well, I, I am, but I think I'm going to, I, I think I'm going to have to try and be there at the weekend. So I'm going to have to have a word with the kids. A few of my elder kids that have come back home... <laughs> 
and I'm, I feel like sort of, you know, come on, guys, you know, a day a week each from you, you know. Uh, something like this is quite good. We're, it was a small place. It's a small town in the Forest of Dean in, in, in um, sort of Gloucestershire on the Welsh borders. So with everybody coming out of lockdown, it's not going to be super busy, but I think I'd like to be open, you know, three or four days a week just to give sure. it a go. You know, the, yeah. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday are those golden days, you know, for holiday makers. So and that's that's the aim. Is uh, um, If I can get Wi-Fi, I could probably take my laptop down. I could do my day job from in there as well. But I think having a, um, a phone call about identity provision and single sign-on in the middle of talking about Sea uh, Winks, which is a tiddly tiddlywinks game, a bit like Battleships, but with tiddlywinks, is going to confuse people rather than delight them. So, you don't think they're already going to be confused by Sea Winks? Okay. Uh, what was your most <laughs> successful score off of eBay this year? You, you said you were getting stuff there. Yeah. Well, actually, I think I, I've I've had I've paid through the nose for some things because I know how rare they are. Right. I think my my favorite purchase is a, is a game called The Game of Jutland or The New Game of Jutland which is a little pad of about 25 pieces of paper and it's battleships but it's battleships bef- from the 1920s this is from Gibson Games and it, I think it, I think it's the first incarnation of the game we all love to hate oh. um and battleships as we know it was something that started coming out in the 1930s. But Jutland is basically each ship that you've got has got a number of salvos. So if you say, I'm going to fire with my destroyer, you might have two shots. So you mm. say A3, A5. Mm. Not, not just A3 and that's it. And then you say D7, whatever it is. You actually have a little bit of sort of scattering of your salvos to try and get a picture of, of where the, the enemy might be. Mm. So... It's still battleships ultimately, but it's it's a kind of weird proto, slightly more skillful right. version of it, and it's in wonderful condition. It's still got the the price tag from the shop that it was wow. bought from. It would have been a department store then. It's probably one of the big ones in Birmingham or London. Um, and none of the pages have been used, and it cost me eight pounds, which is about about twelve dollars. Oh, wow. <laughs> like that. So it's a hundred years old. It's in almost mint condition, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's 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 a piece of history in games that's at the beginning of a cycle of of a game. You right. know, so for me that's that's the kind of thing that interests me the most. I've also got a a whole load of spinners where you sort of which are hex, hexagons which have got one to six on the different edges, and then you stick a match in the middle and you spin them. And these were produced in the Second World War when they couldn't source dice for board games. Mm-hmm. So you'd be given the so games would come with these things instead, and a lot of them just got destroyed because as soon as the war ended and dice were available again, people would just use dice from other games. But I've got a few of those as well in really lovely condition. Hmm. Again, they're not games in themselves, but they're they're a, a picture of a particular time, a right. piece of gaming history that yeah. illustrates more than just the game. It goes beyond that. that. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. You mentioned Birmingham and London, so I assume you're not there. Where where are you? I'm in a, in a little town called Newant in the Forest of Dean. So if you look at the sort of the edge, the border between England and Wales, if you go down to the bottom where the, the River Severn starts getting thin instead of being this huge river, it's around about there, oh, okay. just in, sort of on the Welsh side of that. So I'm really close to the Welsh borders, and I'm really close to loads and loads of beautiful mountains and hills and walks and countryside. Um, not too close to towns and cities, which suits me. 
And one of the advantages of being in such a small area, you might be the biggest tourist attraction in town. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I mean, there's a birds of prey center just up the road. So people can go there and look at owls or they can come in and play a few few games of the six million dollar man board game or the mork and mindy card game oh you my know, god like mork and mindy. I, I had the six million dollar game once upon a time yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's also i'm looking at it now there's also the bionic woman board game and there's also a thing called the bionic crisis which is another six million dollar man board game so you know i ebay is a wonderful resource <laughs> you know exactly what you're looking for i was shocked to see that duran duran had their own board game I didn't realize how really big they were. I mean, you got to be pretty big to have your own board game as a pop act. Well, well see, this is this is where the history ball comes out of me. I've just uh, there's a book called Spin and Move, which is actually by an American couple of authors, and it's about the craze of board games in the 1950s and 60s in America oh. that folks like Parker and MB did that were tied into television shows. Right. And they realized that you could market the board game off the television show and the television show off the board game. They were beautifully complimentary. And, and this book is full of wonderful pictures of these mint condition, you know, really rare board games that are based mm. on the weirdest little shows, you know. Yeah, I know Password was one of those. Yeah, I mean, r- really weirder than that. You know? um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, that's, it's not the museum's not just about the board games as well. It's about I've got loads of books that I've collected, um, you know, antique books, mm-hmm. recent books, modern books, collections of, you know, vanity published books where people have sort of collected particular publishers stuff and, you know, gone all in to find out about that publisher, including one that's based in Gloucester, which is literally 10 miles down the road from me. Mm-hmm. There was a massive board games company based in the middle of the city there that produced probably for 60 years, most of the board games that people in the UK would have ever bought and played. It's quite remarkable, really. It sounds fascinating. It really does. I, I really want to make that journey. When, someday I'll come over for UK Games Day and maybe I'll make a little side trip. <laughs> well, you'll, have to come over, yeah. you'll have to come over for the gathering of chums. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. Check out the museum. We'll play some board games down in there. Or we could arrange a $2,500 holiday. We can go up to Snowden and come back. No, I'm always always out for an angle, Royce. Always. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, if you're serious about the invitation to the gathering of chums, I'm there. Because uh, <laughs> that's sort of something I these the, I've read about that for so many years, and then just such a wonderful, just makes me excited every time I read about it. So yeah. I, it makes me feel ever so slightly closer to Alan Moon because I'm never going to get an invite to um, the proper gathering of friends because I swear too much, but. Um, <laughs> Although, actually, there is that footage of Tom Vassell interviewing Alan, isn't there, where Alan does drop the F-bomb, which is he quite He told quite a dirty little joke there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a legend for that. So maybe there's hope after all. Maybe there's hope. Well, how do you think I feel? I live about an hour and a half from where they hold the gathering of friends, and I still don't have an invitation either. <laughs> you never heard of gate crashing, Royce. <laughs> I'm sure they don't have bouncers on the door, do they? Surely. Yeah, how bad could it be? I don't know. Tom's pretty big. Uh, <laughs> you could always sort of tailgate him, you know. You could just hide yeah, in his shadow. Yeah, drift him behind him. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. All right. Uh, so this has been amazing, Tony. Thank yeah. you so much. Uh, I know that you're interested in, you're planning on doing sort of a Patreon support for the museum as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Or? Um, well, I'm still working on the goals, but I mean, they would be pretty much as you'd expect. I mean, I'm going to keep it simple. I think I've got four goals. One is sort of happy to be involved, but nothing else. Right up to, 
I have a huge amount of money that I don't know what to do with. Please take it from me. So, and I'd like to sort of extend my blog life into sort of doing actual little paper fanzine, sort right. of shed, a shed life publication, you know, maybe a couple of three times a year. Cause I've got so much stuff screaming in the middle of the night, but there's a lot of stuff and a lot of people have come to the blog late and they haven't seen some of the early stuff. And I was doing all sorts of weird, wonderful things right at the start. You know, it's not like I've grown into game of puns recently. <laughs> I was doing, I was doing a lot of that stuff right. From the I moment. remember. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't so, new by any means. <laughs> yeah. So, you yeah. know, I think I've got a, a nice hive of, of, um, of source material that I can, that I can put into sort of a, a reprint approach as well. So we'll see. We'll see. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, did, how would you like people to get a hold of you, or do you not want people to get a hold of you? <laughs> people, people find me on Board Game Geek, which is absolutely okay. I haven't a problem with that at all. I think if you're interested in in slightly different things every day on Board Game Geek, then go and read my blog. Uh, everyone has a shed. I renamed it recently. Um, so yeah, I come along to the blog, have a look. I mean, sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm sad. Most of the time, I'm quite happy about things. I'm silly often. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a part diary, part gaming resource, part whatever I feel like that morning. So yeah, everyone's welcome. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Tony. Really appreciate it. This has been amazing. Uh, it's Thanks. getting quite late where you are, so I guess we'll let you go. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for your time, gents. And, uh, thank you so much, Tony. It was nice meeting cheers, you. Cheers, guys. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, an incredible guest. Very entertaining to listen to. Lots of great stories. And I think you might actually get invited to that uh, chum thing. What we was got it? Bring up chums. Yeah, I think yeah. you might. Oh, that'd be you. awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be awesome if you could go. All right. Well, as always, after our main event, Royce usually comes up with very clever top three that he'd like to do, and this one's excellent. So yeah, really, I'm really clever this time. Yep, you are. You are a clever guy. <laughs> <laughs> now my ego is getting massaged. Always. Oh, I try. Yeah. <laughs> I called you the bullet train. You seem to get offended. Um, but his t before we do the top three, do you want to do your big top three? Top three. See, I don't have to do the effects anymore. He's got it all under control. Royce came up with a top three most interesting museums, galleries, displays, etc. Yeah, well, I figured the the Boydellian Museum of Games and Gaming. Let's talk about some other cool museums or whatever or we've been to in the past that we think are really worth visiting. Yeah. And I'm sad to report that his wife thinks I'm an uncultured goof. <laughs> was good That's not that. what she said. She just said that she was surprised you would do anything of cultural value. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> So I'm going to prove her wrong with my top three. I actually have good answers for this because yeah, I'm, I'm going to pay for that. Because <laughs> I'm actually interested in this kind of thing. So you have a song, which means I'm going first and or you're less, going yeah. last. Okay. Did you? I found this one really hard. By the way, narrowing this down was really tough. See, now you're making me sound bad. You don't have to do that. You could have just said, "Let's just go." <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's just go. <laughs> I was giving you a chance to say, I know, it's so hard. <laughs> I refuse to lie on the podcast. No, I didn't find this hard, but that's because uh, my favorites came to the service very quickly. 
Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, that, that maybe I do lie a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> honorable mention. I am going to uh, promote myself a little bit here. I put on a hell of a tour. I do walking tours. I haven't done them in a while because COVID is evil. Uh, but we're going to be getting back to it soon. And I do three tours in a day. But my favorite is we actually have a tourist attraction here called Graffiti Alley. And Graffiti Alley, uh, when it's good, is amazing. Unfortunately, right now, we're sort of in a middle period where a lot of kids have gone in there and destroyed things. But a few years ago, our former mayor, Rob Ford, declared an alley off Queen Street West to be a place where graffiti was legal. Anything you wanted to do in there was completely fine and dandy. And it used to be called Rush Lane. The city of Toronto actually took that down and put up an official Toronto sign that says Graffiti Alley. So it's actually designed for that. And if you like graffiti, uh, it's an amazing place to see graffiti artists from all around the world who've come to Toronto. We have an amazing selection of Black Lives Matter graffiti in there right now. There's some amazing stuff, all kinds of great murals, wild styles, beautiful stuff. And I, in my opinion, do the best Graffiti Alley tour in Toronto. So if you ever want to see Graffiti Alley and you want someone to take you who can kind of explain what you're looking at and tell you all the stories about the artists and the styles you're looking at, you should go with me. But graffiti is a huge thing for me, especially great street murals and wild styles. So I'm going to say Graffiti Alley is my honorable mention in this list. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from my honorable mention, when I decided to make this list, the first thing I decided was I was going to eliminate all of the big museums. Okay. <laughs> and I was going to concentrate on similar things to like the Boydellian Museum of Games and Gaming. This idea of a smaller, specialized museum that deals with one thing very interesting, very cool. But I do, as my honorable mention, I have to mention... There are some museums that if you have an opportunity to go, you have to go. They're absolutely incredible. Like we're talking the Louvre, the Cairo Museum, the Acropolis Museum, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And I would actually include the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto. I think the Royal Ontario Museum is an excellent uh, museum that for an all around general museum that has a, something of everything. It's just a really good museum, well thought out, well cur curated. So, yeah, I, my honorable mentions don't miss the big ones, but I'm going to talk about some little ones. Yeah. Very controversial building if you've never seen it. Some people like it. I do. And then there are those who don't. Very I don't mind it at all. I don't mind yeah. the crystal at all. Yeah, yeah, I think it's nice. I, you know what? I got to be honest, though. I haven't been as a guest since it reopened as the Crystal Building. I've only been there as the old building, but I've gone to work there. I did a DJ gig. Anyway, who cares? My third. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Royce just rambled through a whole bunch of places and included one of mine, but I'm going to say it anyway. Excellent. I like the Louvre. And I, I, you know, I went to Paris for my honeymoon in 2012 and there was no chance we weren't going to go. I really enjoyed it. Obviously seeing the Mona Lisa or at least the one they have up there. Who knows if that's the real one or not. <laughs> but the one they had up, seeing that and just seeing the incredible amount of people 
hoping to grab a picture of it. I'm lucky I'm 6'3". I didn't have to like jump or anything. I could see over top of most people. Really nice to see that. But it was more of the religious uh, paintings. There's a whole hallway of that. And they're so big. So unbelievably large. Just absolutely beautiful. The whole building is beautiful. And uh, really enjoyed my experience there. Uh, and obviously, if I ever return to Paris, we would definitely go again. Uh, but that is my number three. Yeah, and I'm not saying the Louvre is not worth visiting. It absolutely is. It's amazing. But I just wanted to sort of point out that there are other smaller ones that maybe are worth trying. Well, yeah. you said it was hard for you, so you had to tighten your list anyway. So I can understand yeah. why you excluded the bigger, more noticeable ones. Yeah. Makes sense. And even when I tightened it down, there were still so many little museums that I loved. But, all right, my number three. My number three is the Mint Museum of Toys in oh. Singapore. So cool. this is it's kind of going back to Tony Boydell a little bit. He's doing games specifically. This one was more about toys. And it was incredible. It showed toys that were ancient, right up to very modern, maybe not real modern, 70s and 80s type level at the most. And they are just incredible collections, incredible displays. You can see the evolution of some of these characters that have been in toys forever. But my absolute favorite display in there was the Batman display, obviously. But the coolest thing in the Batman display, because they had everything you can think of for Batman, because Batman has had everything over the years. These were actual Catholic saint medallions for Batman and Robin. Hmm. So this is the this is the 1966 Adam West and Burt Ward Batman and Robin, and you would literally pray to Batman or pray to Robin on these saint medallions. Like, it's right. just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Batman saved me from it. <laughs> I, I knew that you liked Batman and Robin, but not that much. You <laughs> pray to them, but okay, that's. Uh... But I had no idea these things existed, and this museum is just. It's. I think it was six floors. The, wow. the floors weren't huge. It was a fairly small building, but it was just straight up, and it was just beautiful, incredible. If you're in Singapore, it's worth taking a you know a couple hours to go through the Mint Museum of Toys. Very nice. That sounds cool. Uh, my number two. So Royce uh, ran through a list of places. Uh, there were museums. Uh, I really, really like the Art Gallery of Ontario here in Toronto. We actually have. Um, a seasonal membership or whatever you call that season pass. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We get one every year. Uh, sometimes we go more than others. It's more about just supporting the place. Uh, I have a bit of a family tie to the building as well. My father was an iron worker and he helped build this really cool building. If you ever get a chance to see the inside, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, and I've seen a lot of really cool exhibits there. The, uh, I always say his name wrong. Guillermo del Toro. Yep. His exhibit yep. was really cool and probably like a runner up for me. But the best thing I ever saw there uh, was the Salvador Dali exhibit. I was just in love with that. I had, it was one of the best things I've ever seen. So memorable. I loved everything I saw. Uh, That's when I kind of discovered for myself that I love modern art, apparently, or at least some modern, modern art. Um, and it was uh, just a really great exhibit. And fascinating and really kind of was that final piece to attach me to the art gallery of Ontario. So great building, great exhibit. If it ever comes back, I'll definitely be, be in line for that. And if you get a chance to see it in your own hometown, uh, if it's uh, when, you know, when COVID's over, definitely check out the Salvador Dali exhibit. You won't be disappointed. 
See, now I start, I feel a little like the uncultured boob. You are. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. Art galleries generally don't do very much for me. Museums I love. I love museums, but art galleries. I've gone to the Art Gallery of Ontario several times, but yeah, just... I don't know. It just doesn't do it the same for me. I'd rather go to the ROM every time. Pretty sure yeah. if anyone talked to you and I for five minutes, they'd learn real quick that you're the history guy and I'm the artsy guy. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm not surprised to, to hear that. <laughs> What's your number right. two? My number two. My number two is a museum I doubt anyone else has ever been to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in Nha Trang, Vietnam. Okay. There is the Pasteur Institute, and the Pasteur Institute is a research uh, institute where they study viruses and bacteria and whatever else. And they're famous, that particular Pasteur Institute, for a man by the name of Alexandre Yersin. Okay. Who was, he lived in Vietnam, that was his home, uh, and he is famous because he is the one who discovered the pathogen that was responsible for the bubonic plague. Oh, wow. And this was in 1894. We're not talking a long time ago. Like, we're talking 125 years ago. He discovered the reason for the bubonic plague and therefore led to the the cure, led to treatment. And they have the Yersin Museum. And the Yersin Museum, uh, calling it the Yersin Museum, might be just a touch pretentious. Uh, (laughs) It is a... uh, Badly ventilated, a uh, <laughs> bunch of rooms with a bunch of Yersin memorabilia and what have you. But it's a fascinating exhibit. Right. really is. And they have things like, uh, oh, the, the coolest things. They had letters that he had written to his mother while he was researching the plague. Hmm. And in those letters, he had enclosed samples of the plague. Oh, dear. Because his mother was back, in, I think, in England. And she would then give those samples to other researchers and, oh my God. <laughs> you know, that didn't have samples of the plague because it wasn't there. So he mailed the plague to her, basically. Oh, nice, and I and these letters, they actually had all these little holes in them because what they would do is they would take these uh, almost like a, a, you ever see those old things where you put toast into to over a campfire? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so it had little spikes in it, and they would stab the letters with these spikes and then hold them over in this, in this machine that caused a lot of smoke and heat, and that would sterilize the letters, and the, the holes would let the smoke and everything get inside the letter before they'd read it, because anything he sent was probably contaminated with the plague. <laughs> And it's just amazing to see these letters and the contents of the letters. And I'm reading the contents of the letters and they were in French. So I just had to sort of do the best I could, but like he's asking for money in most of them because none of the big universities would support his research here in the, in the wilds of Vietnam at the time he was out in the jungle of Vietnam and, yeah, he, he, so he's asking his mother to send him money to continue his research and to pass on the bubonic plague samples to his other researchers in England. <laughs> it was just a fascinating museum. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> I can't, it just was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've heard of people mailing anthrax, but he was actually not doing it to be mean. Right? <laughs> no, like, <laughs> no, no, this was, uh, this was part of his research. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I hope Amazon is getting the ideas from our podcast. (laughs) 
Wow, that is interesting. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never heard of it, never experienced it, but that is one of the probably the best story we're going to hear today. Well, I don't know. You still have one more to go. I have one more to go. Yeah, I got a pretty good story for my last one too. Yeah, but mine's we'll not. A, <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, my number one, number one. I can't do Royce. I'll let him do Royce. Um, <laughs> it's a good try. I like it. It was. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I'm even saying this right, but because it's also in, in Paris, but it's the Musée d'Orsay. Yep. Yeah. And this is a museum that was built in a train station. Um, obviously, I was very excited for the Louvre, um, but Marilyn, my wife, was more excited about this place, and she was right. It was unbelievable. Um, just incredible uh, sculptures, art. The building itself is unreal. I encountered a sculpture there that changed my life, and I mean that, uh, and not in a good way. And it was something I had to really recover from. Uh, but there was a sculpture there that made humans look like an alien, almost like an insect. And it, as soon as you see it, well, for me anyway, I started seeing humanity in a very different and ugly way. Uh, and it was actually uh, somewhat damaging. And it was something I truly had to take time to recover from. Uh, and it may actually be one of the reasons why I am irreverent now, honestly. It's something that came up a lot in uh, in my original um, stories and and homework I had to do to go through those courses. So that museum, remarkable, that one sculpture, uh, terrifying. It would be the word I would use. And I would love to go to that museum again. I'm kind of hoping that sculpture is gone because it was something that just, I don't know if I was just super tired and jet lagged or whatever, but the way it hit me was not good and not in a good way. And it, it stuck with me forever. So anyway, definitely recommend the museum. Don't recommend that sculpture if you end up seeing it. But the Museum of Dorsey is going to be my number one on this list. I actually have a good story for the Museum of Dorsey too. Oh, okay, go ahead. So when Grace and I were in Paris... It, there was it was a very interesting time to be in Paris because Paris was hosting the World Rugby Championships. Okay, and there were literally like gangs of rugby fans <laughs> running up and down the streets and getting in fights with each other and all this. That's what you need. And a bunch of British rugby fans broke into the Museum d'Orsay oh, no. and punched a Renoir <laughs> <laughs> while we were there. <laughs> That's more uplifting than my story. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so part of the museum was closed. It was in all the news. Ruffians punch <laughs> Renoir. <laughs> it's just... That is fantastic. <laughs> you have a number one that's going to beat that? I need to hear I, it. I don't know if it's going to beat it. <laughs> it's pretty good. All right. So my number one. Number one. That's how you do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, is called The Forest of Stele. Okay. And this is, it's also known as the Beilin Museum of Xi'an, China. Wow. Or Xi'an. Okay. And what a stele is, is think of like a gravestone, like that sort of thickness and width, only six to eight feet tall and covered in writing. Hmm. And it's not a gravestone. It's a written record. Oh, Okay. And this forest of Stele has over 3,000 of these things. 
Oh my God. And every one of them is just this unique moment in what for us is like ancient history, right? right. They're 2000 years old, 2,500 years old, 1500 years old, each one of them. And like, here we build uni- whole museums around these things yeah. if we find something that old. In China, that's just sort of on the corner. But they collected a bunch of these steles together and put them together. And just walking amongst them was fascinating enough. Looking at the art, looking at the writing, looking at all this and the various stories. But the really cool thing about this, unlike English, the written Chinese has not changed substantially in two thousand years. Wow. The way it's spoken has changed, but the written language is pretty consistent, which means Grace can actually read these steles that were 2,000 years old. And the one that just blew us away, it's called the Nestorian stele. It's not as old as some of the others. It was only from 781 AD, so it's 1,300 years old. But it was an account of the very first Christian missionaries to come to China. Mm. So in 781, the first Christian missionaries came to China. Very interesting in and of itself. But the cool part, the part that just, you want to talk, sticks with you. This is something that blew my entire frame of reference for history to some extent. The Chinese carver who was writing down all of this account of these missionaries didn't have a Chinese word for God. Oh. They had the small g word for God because there are many gods in the Chinese mythologies, but this idea of a big G word for God didn't really exist. Hmm. So rather than try to shoehorn an existing word in, they used phonetics. And they, they basically had the phonetic uh, interpretation of what the missionaries called God. Okay. And the phonetic interpretation was Alai. Oh, okay. So the uh, first Christian missionaries who came to China called God Allah. Yeah. Like the Muslims. Yeah. <laughs> and that blew my brain. Because I know that the Muslim... Uh, Jewish and Christian faiths are all very closely interconnected. But the idea of the Christian missionaries originally calling God Allah just blew my brain. Yeah. Definitely changes things, yeah. You could see that in the phonetic translation on this stele that was 1,300 years old. Just blew me away. And the whole museum was just fantastic. But that was the moment where I sat there and just went, huh. My whole life just had a whole switch in paradigm. Like it was just incredible. Yeah. That's kind of cool that both our firsts had that kind of life changing moment too. That's really awesome. I wasn't expecting that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't either. What an episode. Holy cow. Yeah. We had Tony (laughs) Boydell and he was awesome. And I think our top three list was pretty awesome. And we talked about some awesome games. I know you want to finish with a song. Before we do that, let's tell everyone where they can find us real quick. So, again, we love feedback. You heard feedback today. Definitely board at gmail.com. At board definitely is our Twitter. And at board definitely is also our Facebook. We have a guild on Board Gig Week. I still can't find it. I'm going to get Royce to teach me how to find it. Hopefully you can. Uh, Am I missing anything, Royce? 
And you can find our podcast wherever podcasts live. Of course. Yeah. If you found this one, you can find the other 32. I'm sure I have faith. And of course, you can always find us every other Wednesday on or every Wednesday at Cardboard Conjecture, what you've been playing Wednesday. Absolutely. Awesome. So Royce, tell everyone what your final song is and how it connects to your to anything we did today. I had a little bit of a hard time coming up with a song to connect to our top three this time. So I went more with almost an atmosphere and a theme. So this is a song that when I think of the Nestorian Stele, when I think of Alexandra Yestim working on the Black Plague, when I think of all these things, when they come together in my mind, this is a song that sort of encompasses that for me. So this is The Birds, Turn, Turn, Turn. Very poetic. Very nice, Rice. All right. Anything else? Nope. Not a thing. All right. Say goodbye, Rice. Goodbye, Rice. Bye, everybody. Yeah.